is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Hello, I'm Wayne Scott and welcome to the latest episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, keeping Jaguar fans in touch wherever you are. This week we learn the latest on E10 fuels with FBHVC chairman David Whale and in a special interview with Graham Searle explore the history of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and some of his personal highlights from the last 36 years. Plus, Richard remembers more motorsport memories and we answer your technical questions. JECpodcast.com First though, hope you've had another week of keeping safe and well and with any luck you've managed to sneak in some time in the garage either working on or drooling over your Jaguars as the UK's lockdown continues. If, by the way, you have been working on something special during the last few weeks, do let us know either through the contact pages or the voicemail system, preferably at jcpodcast.com or, of course, by sending in your reports to Nigel Thorley, editor of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, the latest issue of which is free to all members and includes over 130 pages of brilliant Jaguar articles. His details are all in the pages of the magazine, and the May issue, by the way, lands on doorsteps very, very soon. Also, we mentioned last week the campaign run by the FBHVC for collecting Drive It Day memories on their website at driveitday.co.uk, and many of those images we shared on our social media pages over the weekend as well. And there was loads of pictures from Jaguar Enthusiast Club members. So I reckon we all did ourselves proud. And you can go and see all of those from fellow members at driveitdate.co.uk. Now, before the COVID-19 crisis dominated everyone's thoughts and concerns a major story before lockdown was the reopening of the government consultation into ethanol fuels and in particular increasing the standard grade of fuel we use to e10 which is a much higher percentage of ethanol content now while most modern jaguars are perfectly compatible with all of this it has caused a lot of concern amongst classic Jaguar owners whose fuel systems may be adversely affected by this extra ethanol content. So, following the full consultation statement being published on our news pages at www.jec.org.uk, I thought I'd take the opportunity to talk to the Federation Chairman, David Whale, and find out just what we need to know about the government's plans for E10 and how it might affect the owners of older Jaguars. Essentially, government are considering the introduction of E10 in order to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, We will, of course, respond to the consultation, um, but we already have what we require for the future. And this is a commitment to provide an E5 protection grade. Now, this is recognizable at the pump by having an octane rating of between 97 and 99 uh, RON. Now, government has already acknowledged that historic vehicles need this product, um, and we've, through the people we work in government with very closely, 
we, since the consultation was launched, have um, had a written parliamentary question raised by Sir Greg Knight and a second one by our president, Lord Steele. Um, and the response to um, Sir Greg Knight's um, WPQ was basically to say, we recognize that historic vehicles need a product like the E5 protection grade. What was interesting with David Steele's question, which um, was submitted just a few days later, that when the government response came to that, they actually said that they would introduce legislation to ensure the continued availability of the E5 protection grade. And certainly, Lord Steele, in comparing the answer he got with the answer that Sir Greg had got, recognised that there had been a development of government thinking to make that commitment to legislation. So that's actually really positive. And there were some concerns early on, wasn't there, that this was going to be time limited. Are you, are you satisfied that that's not going to be the case now? When this protection grade has been talked of in the past, it's actually been a government commitment to make it available for two years. The current consultation on E10 actually provides the opportunity for us to ask for it for um, a period of five years. And that is good because what we need to do um, is we need to demonstrate, and this is the whole historic classic vehicle community, we actually need to demonstrate we need this product by purchasing it. Then... In five years' time, when we have to go back to government to say we need E5 protection grade for another five years, then there's good data supporting that request. And of course, this all comes off the back of some real concerns about how ethanol affects seals, fuel systems, rubber hoses, components like that. What do you think owners can yeah. do to mitigate the risk of their classic cars being affected by this? Lots of part suppliers are now advertising uh, products like um, rubber fuel hoses that have resistance to ethanol. I think the important thing is to talk to uh, um, specialists and uh, listen to their advice in terms of products that actually stand up to ethanol um, better than um, maybe some of the um, items in use have done in the past. 
Well, thank you, David. And some good news for owners of classic Jaguars in all of that. And hopefully the results of the consultation will get the result that we need. And E5, the protection grade, will be on sale alongside E10, if, of course, that does arrive. But uh, our thanks to the FBHVC uh, for all the hard work they're doing on our behalf. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West has enjoyed a lifetime in motorsport and this week looks back at why Jaguar as a brand means so much to him and why he keeps coming back to his favourite cars. It's an interesting one for me why I've come back to Jaguar in my later life. You know, I'm 64 in a few days' time and my wife worked for Rothmans. We've been married now for 24 years and she was a senior event director within Rothmans and that was how we met through the Formula One sponsorship that I put together with my brilliant team of boys and girls that... Williams back in 93 and I had a Japanese film crew come to talk to me um, a couple of years ago and I thought they were coming to do a little piece on me with Senna and the last guy to interview him and blah 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 and we spent about 20 minutes talking about Jaguar and in the end I said to the Japanese interviewer do you not really want to talk about Formula 1 and he said no 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 sports car racing in Japan is huge Jaguar you know it's this is what we want to get in the can so we talked about it for a couple of hours and when they left, Denise, who'd worked with Derek Bell, Jochen Mass, Hans Stuck, she'd worked with Wayne Gardner and Kenny Roberts in World 500cc motorbikes, she'd worked with Kenneth Erickson in World Rallying. You know, she's got a great motorsport career herself behind her. She said to me, you never talk much about your Jaguar days. And this is about three, three or four years ago. And I dug out my huge archive of stuff. And I started looking back over the photographs of that period with Tom. And I can't honestly put my finger on it, but it just sparked something in me. You know, I've still got one of these little, very small, 18-carat gold Jaguar cats on a marble leapers, on a marble plinth that was given to me by somebody within Jaguar as a thank you. And it just it just sparked everything off again. And within about eight weeks, I, um, I went out and bought myself an XJR100, the um, centenary car that was um, built in limited numbers to... Uh, commemorate the um, centenary of Sir William Lyons. I've got two of them now, but that's a long story I won't bore you with now. And it just rang a lot of bells for me. And I went back over my diaries, which are extensive, and my photographic collection. And I just suddenly thought, you know, actually now, for me, my Formula One stuff, I wouldn't have missed a second of it in my life and working with guys like Prost, Lauda, Mansell, Senna, Schumacher. But you know what, when you when you work in such a big team as we had, which is what it took to be successful in sports car racing, it leaves an indelible mark. And every time I do something with Jaguar, as you know, I've recently been appointed to the board of the JC, which I'm very, very proud of. And I'm on um, the Ops Committee on a couple of the uh, committees that exist within it. It's a brand that deserves preserving, and I don't think we, we still globally don't tell enough stories about just how fantastic it is and when you get in amongst it and you get in amongst the members and you start to talk to some of the people about their involvements you just come away thinking well you know what a fantastic brand to be associated with and quite honestly I, I, the people i work with in the club the board the organizers all the events committees all the various things that are involved in the jc which takes a phenomenal amount of work I see the benefits of that when I occasionally go out to the regions and do talks and things. And I see the look on people's faces and it's just an absolute joy to recount some of the experiences that I've been blessed to have in my life. And I do feel blessed because 
the career I've had in motorsport has been phenomenal and I don't feel, to be honest, like I've ever gone to work for a day in my life. It's just been everything I've always wanted to do since I first got involved in rallying back in 1977. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Your technical questions answered now on the JEC podcast, and we've got Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar with us once again. Hi, Tom. Hi, Wayne. How are you? I'm good, Tom, and uh, lockdown continues, but work is continuing with you down at Swallows Independent Jaguar, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We're still just about ticking over and carrying out any sort of essential repairs needed. So Roger Sarnbrook has provided the questions for this week's JEC podcast and we're just going to do Roger's questions this week because they are quite detailed and we have conferred with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club expert team of technical advisors on this in particular David Marks who's been really helpful in pulling together some really good information on this question so uh, from Roger Sarnbrook he says about his 1976 XJS V12 he's asking about the rear crankshaft seal here he says uh, are there options to replace it with a lip seal his looks like it's rotated as there's a gap between the two halves what are the options what are the pros and cons over the rope seal and the second part of this question regards the oil pump on this v12 xjs and he says oil pumps seem to be prohibitively expensive to buy on his the inner gear he thinks is loose you can see the movement in it the outer is beyond spec and there's no scoring, just a lot of play. So what's our opinion? Now, we did have a chat to David Marks about this. And uh, David Marks started off by giving us a bit of background on these seals. The Jaguar V12 engine, as found in this 1976 XJS of Roger Sandbrook, was introduced in 1971 and used a rope seal system for the rear crankshaft seal all the way through to sometime in 1987-ish thereabouts, when Jaguar themselves re-engineered the block and the crankshaft to incorporate a lip seal rear crankshaft oil system. Now, the words re-engineered are the absolute crux of this issue, aren't they, Tom? Yeah, D Dave has made a couple of clear points on this. So um, both the cylinder block and crankshaft are designed for the rope seal, and at least the crankshaft would require modification to accept the lip seal. As for the rope seal, a reverse scroll is machined into the seal track to improve the sealing quality and take oil away from the seal. This needs removing. In short, to convert to a lip seal requires extensive work and considerable cost over and above the need to strip the engine for crankshaft removal. Rob Beer mentions a conversion system on his website saying the block does not require machining, but the crankshaft does and a kit comes with flywheel and all other parts. This implies that possibly the conversion he has designed can only be carried out on a manual car, but I would need to clarify this with him. On to the question in hand though. The rope seal and Dave experience has been quite reliable and in mine. Dave has owned many V12 cars and not had problems. Likewise, we've installed lots of rope seals over the years to both six and 12 cylinder engines and to date and not had any problems. The secret is to follow instructions carefully and certainly not, absolutely not, to cut the rope seal ends. Each half must and will, with work, all fit into the housing, so don't be tempted to cut the seal. If the seal has spun or formed a gap, my guess is it's been cut or perhaps not sized properly. 
carefully inspect the crankshaft and seal housing to see if it has been overheated, as if the seal has been rotating, this kind of implies it has not been sized correctly. There is a special tool for installing and sizing a seal, and it must be used in order to achieve an accurate result. Other problems we see with leaks from these seals is that the engine breather can become blocked, and this creates an increase in crankcase pressure, forcing oil out of the next weakest link, which is often the rear crank seal. So if the seal is leaking, the very first item to check is the engine breather. It must be completely clear. As for the oil pump, the earlier pumps, as fitted, all of the 5.3 litre cars rarely cause issues, but the later ones for the 6 litre units can be prone to problems. So we would look to check and ideally retain the original pump. I'm not sure what the description of the inner gear being loose means, as it slots over the drive dog on the nose of the crankshaft. If the pump is removed, it will float slightly within the mesh of the outer gear and crescent. Now the workshop manual gives clear instructions as to how to check the pump for specification. First thing to note is that after removal and dismantling to expose the gears, prior to removal of said gears, each gear must be marked to ensure they go back together in the same mesh. This is very important. The manual actually says to inspect the gears and to remove any slight burrs with a fine file before reassembly. Then, with the gears fitted, the radial clearance within the housing must be checked. The clearance for the driven outer or larger gear should not exceed 5,000 of an inch measured between the gear and the housing, but do not measure any of the six radial flats just on the outer circumference. For the inner gear, the clearance between the gear and crescent should not exceed 6,000 of an inch. To check the gear end float, place a straight edge across the pump body and gears and measure the gap between the edge and gear faces it should not exceed five thousandths of an inch. Well, thanks, Tom, and thanks to David Marks for sending in that answer for us as well. On to Roger Sandbrook's next question, actually, and uh, we leave the XJS V12 and head to a slightly more modern Jaguar, the X350, and he's talking about rear anti-roll bar bushes, and he says, I've got a 2005 Super V8 as well, a high-mileage car, and one of the rear anti-roll bar bushes is gone. Is there a trick way to get to these without dropping the rear subframe? So I'll, I'll be completely honest with you that we've never actually had to change these for maintenance, only to upgrade them for a PowerFlex alternative. Now, as the manual says, it is a case of unfortunately dropping down the rear axle. Um, we do actually still carry out this process, but you can speed up this process slightly by just loosening the subframe and removing the upper wishbones to gain access. It is a little bit fiddly, but you can just about gain access to this. But ideally, it is easier to drop the whole rear axle down. Now, knocking from the rear isn't usually down to um, the actual D-bars itself. It's normally due to either anti-roll bar drop links, tie rod bushes, or the lower wishbones them actual self. We also get issues with the actual shocks themselves on these that can cause knocking. Um, but what I would suggest is that this can be quite easily checked by disconnecting both of the drop links to allow the bar to float freely and then see if there's any play in the D-bar bushes themselves before you go ahead and changing these. 
Usual warnings and safety considerations apply, of course, because whenever you're working on anything with suspensions, especially on the big saloons like the XJ6s, and you have to make sure that not only the car is supported safely and you're working in a safe environment, but also that uh, you know what you're doing when you're undoing all of those potentially lethal bits of suspension as well, don't you, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. That That is a good point because with uh, sort of removing the subframe on your driveway, it's a fairly intensive job. It's a lot easier, obviously, with a ramp, etc., where you can support and and move the subframe as needed, if that makes sense. Great stuff. And, uh, Tom, of course, so you've been very busy again with Maguire's. What was in the last episode of the Maguire's Tom versus Dale? Yeah, so the, um, the last episode, um, I believe we spoke about that, that we were fitting the brakes, so that's now out there. If any of you are interested in seeing... A kind of step-by-step process of how to fit some Tarox brakes to the early S-Type R with the Brembo calipers. That was featured in the last episode, which went out on Sunday. Um, so we're just sort of uh, lining up some the next round of jobs to do on the car, basically. Um, but obviously, with what's going on at the moment, it's it was meant to be going to the body shop, but that's been, unfortunately, put on hold till the lockdown is lifted. Excellent. And, of course, you can ask all of your questions here on the JC podcast, and it's not just Tom answering them. Of course, we have... Uh, David Marks on the panel as well, amongst all our other Jaguar Enthusiast Club experts, of which there are a plethora within the club. So it's very easy to ask your question and have it answered. And it could be your question on next week's podcast. Just go to our website, jecpodcast.com, and use preferably the little voice recorder there that allows you to leave us a voice message in order for us to put you on the show. Or, of course, you can, as Roger did today, use the contact form to leave us a written question as well it's all on there for you at jcpodcast.com so until next week see you tom thanks wayne cheers bye-bye you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk well, joining me on the JEC podcast now is uh, one of those that was there at the very beginning of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club way back in 1984. Graham Searle, welcome along. Uh, thank you, Wayne. Good to talk to you. Let's start by looking back at the 1980s and telling us really what was on offer for Jaguar fans back in that period of time. Well, of course, it started uh, when we were looking at uh, starting the club. Um, there was only one Jaguar club around at the time and before that, Jaguar had been sort of a bit of doldrums. But John Egan was then at the helm of uh, Jaguar. And uh, the current XJ6 Series 3 and the XJ12, they were the popular models. They were going well. Of course, we had the XJS. Uh, and, of course, more importantly, we had the racing exploits of, in the European Tour Car Championship with Tom Walkinshaw, which, of course, raised the profile of Jaguar. So Jaguar was on a reasonable high after um, quite a, a poor period. Um, and a few of us felt there was a need for more in the club world, particularly in terms of the practical side, uh, helping people to maintain their cars, not spend a fortune on them, the good old days, if you'd like, um, well, when we could do those things. So we basically, uh, 10 of us got together one day and looked at the situation and felt, well, the only way we could really do something sensible was to form another club. And hence the Jaguar Enthusiast Club was uh, born. We even debated the name for quite a while. Um, and of course, the word enthusiast stuck because that's what we were and that's what we wanted our members to be. 
Uh, and one of the hallmarks of the club, of course, over all these years has been the fact that we are enthusiasts. And, and still, although we're a business and everything else one has to be today, it's still run by enthusiasts. Tell us about that first ever meet then. Where was it? Who was there? And what was on the agenda? <laughs> I can't remember the agenda, but basically I seem to recall it was... Um, around Despair's Day at that time, um, and I think it was Banbury Way from memory, um, when those of us that would normally be there um, you know, got together, as I say, there was 10 of us. But what was interesting about those initial 10 is the uh, it wasn't all experts on cars. We were very lucky in that those of us that formed the club uh, had a real mix of skills. I mean, Gordon Wright, who's a vice president, he was uh, running Practical Classic at that time and, of course, started Kelsey Publishing, which turned, has proved to be one of our big motoring publishers. Nigel Thorley was an author um, and an editor, so he had those skills. The likes of Ken Jenkins, he was a, he's our club technical advisor still, and, of course, he was um, uh, very knowledgeable then and still is, particularly on the XAS, pre-XAS cars and the cars of the era when we started. And Mike Haller, who's our model forum manager, he was at the beginning. Myself, of course, and my skill, if I, if I have one, was I was an admin man. And, of course, that was needed. Um, and finally, of course, Keith Vincent, who's still with us as the vice president, he was a senior policeman. He had great organisational skills. Um, and he still works with us looking after members' DDLA issues. Sadly, two of those early ones have passed away. Uh, Robert Archard, who was the club's first chairman, he passed away early through cancer. And likewise, David Webb, who was our first treasurer, he sadly passed away as well. Um, but it's not bad having that number still involved in the club after 35 years. Mm, absolutely. And you engage with the manufacturer early on. As you mentioned before, John Egan was at the helm and Jaguar itself was in a period of change. But you very, very early on in the club's history, you engaged with Jaguar as a manufacturer, didn't you? We actually engaged before we started because we felt it was important that we had their approval to use the Jaguar name um, and the logos that we did use, i.e. the wings. Um, so we went to see them before we actually officially announced the club on the 1st of December 1984. I mean, they've always been very supportive as much as they can, and we've always had wonderful relationships with the various MDs over the years. Well, so when I joined in 1984, in those early days, how much would it have cost me, and what did I get as a member at the beginning? Well, it would have cost you £12. Right. Um, and what we did decide right from day one is that, again, you've got to think back to the 1980s. Mm. Um, clubs were producing magazines which were basically roneoed or photocopied. We decided we'd go with a full-print, glossy magazine from day one, which was not usual in those days, of course. Mm. Um, and we always felt that set our stall out. And again, of course, because we had a publisher in Gordon, etc., so we had access to the... Um, uh, to the printers and to the, the right way of doing this sort of thing. And yes, yeah, so issue one was a 32-page glossy A4 magazine, which we were very proud of. And I've actually got one framed in the office, um, which I see every day when I'm in the office. We thought we might grow reasonably well, but um, we took on 500 members within the first month. And then we produced our first specialist tool, which again was quite ambitious for a club in its infancy. Mm. Uh, um, and that was the XK engine timing chain adjuster, a very small thing, but a big step for us. And things like that and the hub puller, which uh, came in not long after that, are still going strong today. 
But one, from a personal point of view, I'll never forget after that first meeting, we were all high as a kite having decided what we were going to do, John, you know, start a new club. And I remember going home to my wife, Lynn, bless her, who's put up with this all these years, saying, it's all right, dear, we formed a new club. It won't mean much work. You know, just something a few hours a month. You know, <laughs> we know that it's been full time for most of my life. <laughs> Thirty-six years later, and you still haven't even got to the bottom of the jobs list. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, of course, events were very important early on, weren't they? As well, and one of those early events that ran for quite a long period of time was the split between Northern Days and Southern Days. Tell us about those early events. Well, of course, Nigel Thorley, being one of our directors, he decided, you know, uh, he, he found the right place for us to have our very first major event, and that was at Harewood House near Leeds. Um, and on that very first event, we had uh, 300 Jaguars, which if you think in terms of the size of the club, uh, that's a, a large percentage. So we're very pleased with that. And we actually held 16 Northern Days at um, Harewood over the years, which is quite colossal. And as you say, it really became Northern and Southern because later on we held uh, a, an event at RAF Hendon and we started calling that Southern Day. So our Northern and Southern Day um, scenario stayed with us for many, many years, up until about three or four years ago. Mm. I have fond memories of the Northern Days at Harewood House myself. There were hundreds of Jaguars parked on the hillside there, weren't there? Yeah, and it was a fabulous site because it was sloped, so you always got a really good view of all the cars um, and there's wonderful pictures of those early days floating around yeah fond memories the real fun bit when you think about it now though is that we would rock up maybe on a saturday afternoon put a few bits and pieces up have a day on sunday drive home sunday of course, now events for everybody have changed so dramatically that there can be a couple of days in advance setting up and then a very full day, if not a full weekend, and then another night and maybe the next morning packing up to go home. So, you know, it's come a long way since then. Doing those shows in those early days, it was all done on a bit of a shoestring, wasn't it? And I understand that your caravan was pressed into service, <laughs> but it kind of ended in a bit of a disaster <laughs> at one point. <laughs> Yeah, I think we overdid it. Yes, we. My caravan was used to take all the stuff around and sit on site, and that was fine for a while. But of course, we got more and more stuff, and in the end, the axle broke on it, um, <laughs> and so we, sadly we had to give that up. But then we moved on to a van, uh, and we still use a van these days, but also hire vans and things because we have that much more stuff to take with us when we do an event, be it indoor or outdoor. Uh, but yeah, that, I'm not a great caravaner, but we had a lot of fun with that caravan in those days. As well as helping people with information on how to buy Jaguars, how to keep their Jaguars on the road, part of the growth as well was down to the fact that you drew a lot of attention to the club quite early on in its history by doing a lot of initiatives for charity. And uh, one of those was actually, uh, of course, to raise money for Jaguars of the furry kind as well that was an early initiative yeah that was when gordon wright came up with and um, helped save the jaguar in the rainforest it was very popular in, in its day uh, we had a proper stickers made etc uh, and it got everywhere and i can't honestly remember the amount we raised it at this stage but it was uh, it was significant and a very worthwhile cause of course and sadly it's probably due to be done again and they need our help still 
Mm. And over the years, through the raffle cars, I think the total count that the club's up to at the minute is uh, over £450,000, which is incredible achievement, isn't it? It is, and it's staggering again. In the early days, the first raffle car, I seem to recall, was a Series 2 XJ6, which we raffled at Harewood on the event itself, and probably raised two or three grand. Um, and now we're up to buying... Uh, four or five year old XKs or F-types and raising and selling sort of significant numbers of tickets and raising significant amounts of money for charities. And as you rightly say, we've uh, uh, raised over 450,000 over the years. And bear in mind, that's just what we've done through our major raffles. Our local regional network, they've also raised money for charities. Um, and I obviously haven't got a figure for that, but uh, together it's a substantial and worthwhile sum. And of course, you mentioned the regions there. Let's talk about those uh, for a moment, because that has become the backbone, the spine of the club. It must have been amazing to have seen that develop over the years. It was, because within the first few weeks, we had seven regions formed, um, which is quite substantial, really, when all we got out probably was one or maybe two magazines. Obviously hit a need, where we now have 80-plus regions worldwide, some of them very active indeed, some of them is is big or bigger than a lot of car clubs in their own right, doing a lot of, say, charity work, but also providing a lot of entertainment for members, uh, a lot of fun. I mean, it shows how things have changed. I only spent uh, two nights ago on Zoom having a conference call, regional meeting, uh, where we had a quiz. So it's come a long, long way since <laughs> the first ordinary meetings in a pub in 1984. Uh, and the regions do provide the social face. As things developed in 1992, the magazine had grown in size in the number of pages and the depth of the content that it was providing. Uh, Nigel Thorley, who of course is editor now, was editor then, and it took on its first restoration project in 1992. And one of the attractions of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club for many has been the incredible wealth of technical knowledge within the club and some really knowledgeable characters that have come through over the years. That's absolutely right. I mean, I said earlier, we started with Ken Jenkins. Ken is a quiet fellow, but his knowledge is absolutely immense. Um, And we had Ken Bell in the early days or up until reasonably recently. And Ken was, of course, uh, foreman at uh, Coombs of Guildford and worked on all the the Coombs cars, the Mark IIs. used to drive the Graham Hill car to the uh, um, circuit for Graham Race. So his knowledge of those early cars is also immense. In fact, his son, Peter, is still with us as a technical advisor. I suppose the biggest one that's joined since that, the biggest in stature, in, in size of reputation rather than in size of person, is Dave Marks. And of course, Dave uh, comes along with an immense ability to absorb anything technical, um, particularly on the more modern cars, which uh, require an, an awful lot of skill to understand. Uh, and he has been a backbone of the more modern era of the club, um, uh, helping us out and he does the seminars and what have you and he's also acted as breakdown cover on some of our big international tours so we've been very lucky uh, we have within the forums as well some experts many people who will help out when required uh, to keep helping members keep their cars on the road and i mentioned the relationship with jaguar that flourished through the 1990s didn't it and i dug out from my own archives here graham 
a little picture <laughs> which I will post on the website at jcpodcast.com alongside this episode so everyone can have a look of a very young looking Graham Searle here this is a photo that I took and I think it's in 1996 of when you were launching the XK8 and travelling around the country with it uh, for the BEN charity that's got to be one of the highlights throughout the years that has that, well you're, you're absolutely right it's one of my personal highlights and it's something that you can't believe would happen. Basically, going back to 96 um, or 95 when it started, Jaguar were about to launch the new XK8, which was quite revolutionary from them. At, at the time, we had the XJS as the only sports car. Um, and out comes the XK8. Um, everyone was getting very excited by it. And uh, we had a board meeting, and we agreed to approach Jaguar and say, look, how about lending us two pre-production cars to drive all around the country, visiting your dealers and our regions and giving members rides um, for a fee for charity in this wonderful new car? Now, can you imagine trying to approach a company now to do that? Mm. Um, but we were very fortunate in one major issue. In fact, Nick Shaler was chairman of Jaguar at the time. A wonderful, wonderful man, Nick was. Very, very good to the club. So he said, yeah, good idea. Um, so we had to think about it, what we did. We set it up, um, and the idea was to take two cars. And to start with, Nigel Thorley was taking one and doing the, the northern half of the country, and I, with other drivers, um, were doing the southern half. So to pick these cars up, um, Jaguar did a mighty launch at the factory uh, to show all their workers, again, something that isn't done these days, but to show the workers, have a big open day for all their workers to show them these two new cars. Now, the charity Ben, for those that don't know, is a big motoring charity, looks after people that have been in the motor business, etc. It's done a lot of good work over the years. And so it was a natural choice for us. So I was a little bit nervous on the day because, you know, you're going into the Jaguar factory, which I always, always enjoyed going to Brands Lane, into this huge uh, hangar warehouse where they had all this going on, hundreds of people, and there were these two cars. Um, mine was uh, the, uh, the name of the colour, but the red one, and I just took the green one. Um, but you've got to remember that we hadn't even seen these cars before. No one had. We didn't know how to drive them. I mean, yeah, it's not too difficult to drive a Jaguar, but you don't know where anything is. Um, and there's all these people and all these dignitaries around. So right at the end of the day, when people started to move, uh, got in the car to look at it, found how the radio worked. Funny how you always do that, <laughs> isn't it? Find how the radio works first. But anyway, found all that, and it was a convertible. The roof was up. And as I started to drive out, there's suddenly a knock on the window, which frightened the life out of me. Right the window down, it was Nick Shaler. And he said, if you're going to pose, put the bloody roof down. <laughs> so um, put the roof down. And basically, other than those parts, for the next fortnight, bear in mind this was October, we never put the roof up. And we were lucky with the weather. We went all around the southern half. I had various people join me as co-drivers um, while we did that. When we got to a regional meeting, the aim was we'd go to a dealer on the day and have a reception there with the local mayor, or dignitaries. And then we would go to the regional meeting and charge a fiver for the uh, regional members to come out with me, uh, whoever's driving the car, and do a, a circuit of the town or whatever, five, six miles, just to fill the new car. Quite an honour when no one else had really seen and no one actually owned one of those cars at that time. 
I always felt sorry for the uh, person that had the first ride because, of course, I wouldn't know where I was. So I'd be doing a route guided by him, fairly quiet. But you can imagine, by the time the 10th person got in the car, I was thoroughly enjoying the route. I'm not sure they did, <laughs> but it, uh, I think they got better value for money or, or more <laughs> adrenaline rush um, at the end of the day. I have to make a, a sort of personal admission here, really, because you also went to those dealerships, as you said, and at those dealerships, they often put on quite glitzy evenings, didn't they? And uh, you had rocked up at Marshall's in Peterborough, which was my local Jaguar dealership at the time, and I know it was invite only. I'm, I'm afraid to admit all of these years later that we did gate crash it, Graham. <laughs> Our name wasn't on the list, but we crept in anyway. <laughs> it was worth it. It was worth it to come and see you all with that new car. And it was the first time I'd ever seen the XK8 as well. And as you say, it was a really exciting thing. And it's a stunning car. And now it's still one of the most popular cars in the club. Uh, my wife has one. And I wouldn't change it. It's such a practical, glorious car. And even you know the likes of now, when we can't actually drive it, it still looks beautiful sitting on the drive. We still, in our family, say, oh, do you remember that day when we gate crashed the XK8? K8 launch. It's still one of the family stories that we're proud of. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't have said, told you off. Oh, what would I have been in 96? I was 12 years old. There you go. That'll scare you. <laughs> well, as the club progressed into the 2000s, the events became even more ambitious. And in particular, one took the club to South Africa, didn't it? Yes. Um, we do, The club had already, via our Surrey Enhanced Borders region, to, uh, shipped cars to America. So that was the first time anyone had done anything like that. And that was successful. Um, but I was taken over, Nigel and myself were taken over to, um, in 98, to South Africa by Craig Anderson, who was the, the rep, our, our rep out there, to do a small tour. Um, uh, in that country to celebrate 50 years of the XK. Um, it was glorious. I'd never been to South Africa. It's a wonderful country. And of course, from a driver's perspective, you can drive for miles and not see another car. Uh, well, you could then, of course. And we loved it so much. And Craig was such a great organizer that we um, decided that we had to do it. We had to let our members uh, go and try this. So with Craig over there and myself and Simon Cronin and Anne over here, we organized... Uh, a tour and, and one of the glorious sites. We had this beautiful hotel um, outside of um, Stellenbosch, or just in, on the edge of Stellenbosch, which had a long sweeping drive and a big crescent shaped front. Now, of course, if you think about it, when you do something like this, the cars have to be shipped. So the cars had to be shipped from England three, four, five weeks before the people arrived. So they had to get there. Um, we, went, we went over there. We then had to move with the help of South African members. We had to move 50 Jaguars from the port to the hotel. And we parked all these cars up round in a beautiful display with a wonderful drophead Mark V right in the middle. And then eventually, of course, we met the airplane with all the people on and took them by coach up to the hotel. Now, these are, these are mostly the men that will worry about it, but the men haven't seen their pride and joys for five weeks, so they're keen to see them again. And there was almost tears as the coach came up the drive to see this beautiful display and this glorious setting of all their cars safely parked up on the lawns. It was um, quite an amazing sight. And, and meanwhile, the racing championship had started in the club as well to cater for those that wanted to take their Jaguar out on track. Yeah, this, this came about because of the 1998 XK50 again. Um, 
And we managed to uh, get, uh, we took over Donington Circuit. And Donington, before they made the changes, had a wonderful infield where you could really lay out your cars, a big number of cars, uh, and the circuit below. So everybody enjoyed it. Um, uh, and we, uh, we, we managed to get 550 XKs to turn up. Um, I remember there was one of our South African members had come over and he was stood on the banking looking out and he said, I've only ever seen four XKs together before. <laughs> Unfortunately, a good friend of mine, Terry Dye, had recently re- retired early from the bank, loved his racing, and I managed to persuade him to get involved. Well, 20-odd years later, Terry's only just retired from doing the job. But it was a great um, start, and we ran those XK races with good grids. And a lot of the drivers are well-known today, um, uh, you know, racing people like Nigel Webb, uh, and co who are, have raced with us all this time and have now raced at Le Mans and, and all around the world. So it, it's been a, a wonderful series, which we then backed up later with the uh, XJSs and the, you know, all the other cars in the GT series. So we've, um, we've done pretty well. And of course, I can't mention them without mentioning our sponsors and um, you know, who have supported us over the years whilst we've been doing this. So it's been a, uh, an excellent interest for the club and for members. Well, of course, as the club grew, the workload must have got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it got to such a point, didn't it, Graham, where you had to leave your, your day job and come and, and work for the club, basically. Tell us about that transition. <laughs> yes, it was, it, it was um, obviously getting bigger and bigger. And we reached about 10,000 members and... But fortunately for me, my wife Lynn had uh, taken on the membership role from day one, um, and we were working from home doing that for a long period of time. And then we had Philippa Fox uh, join us um, while we're still working at home. And and by the way, Philippa retires after all these years, 27 years she's with us. She retires at the end of this month. So just publicly thank Philippa for all she's done for the club um, over that period to help us get where we are today. Uh, but yes, it got busier and busier. We desperately needed a general manager. Now, from my point of view, my and a bit of luck was I was working for NatWest Bank at the time. I just finished the government privatisations, Maggie's uh, era, and the bank came up with a redundancy package, which was a pretty good one. So I was then quality manager, uh, not a job I really enjoyed, to be honest. And I went to my boss and said, look, I've got the chance to do something you know I really want to do would you let me go? And I didn't think he would because you don't lose your quality manager. And it turns out he said yes. So either I was no good at it or um, he had an ulterior motive. And it turns out he'd taken the package anyway. I was lucky there. So I took the package. I went to the club, obviously went to the club first and offered to do that job. We came to an arrangement and um, there I've been ever since. It must have been an amazing thing to have been at that very first meeting back in 84 and now see the club get to the point where it's it's basically people's careers now. There are people working for it and it's become a proper business in that sense. Does that bring certain challenges? And, and what? How do you think that changed the club in any way? I think it has over the years. If you, you know, reminiscing about the early days, how simple it was. We, you know, we'd have board meetings, we'd have committee meetings, and we go down the pub. Um, nowadays, you have to run these things, like it or not, much more business-like. You won't survive, and there's too many rules and regulations. You know, GDPR in the last year or so that you have to run it properly. And yes, therefore, that adds its own uh, level of um, things you have to adhere to. And of course, they're not exciting to do, but they have to be done. 
Um, and fortunately, we managed to cope with a relatively small board um, and, and small employees all the way through. And I think that I'm proud of that. And uh, also proud if you look at uh, the regions and the, the people we've met. You know, a lot of people have um, found new friends and are now form, formed firm friendships through the club uh, which may not have happened if we weren't around still very much driven by volunteers from the area directors and uh, regional leaders through to the model forums and the experts that run those areas and then of course all of those people that come together to deliver events and we talked just a minute ago about some of those early events that were quite ambitious but probably most of them pale into insignificance compared to Windsor. That's got to be one of those events that really stands out for you. Yeah, personally for me, yes, the highlight of anything I've ever done within the club. Um, it's uh, to be able to do it, to work with the people I worked with uh, um, and, you know, and talk to uh, chat to people like Admiral Sir James Perrone, the governor of the castle, who was a wonderful chap. And, uh, you know, to be enthusiastic with those and to meet some of the royal family uh, and that side of it and just be there and be involved in such a huge, a place of such huge history in England was a real honour. Obviously, it added nightmares because um, we, we did a parade of 250 cars and those parade cars had to collect in the Frogmore area, which is owned by Her Majesty. So we ha- everyone had to go through full security um, to do that. Can you imagine what that took? So I had to have sort of everybody's name, date, inside leg measurement and everything you can possibly think of um, to do that. But it, in those days, I was ably he- helped by Helen Hodgson, who was with us then, who has now moved on. But uh, me, me and her worked closely, and, and she was really instrumental in, in a lot of that success as well. Um, well, there's several moments I remember from that, obviously, but um, a couple of them. We were in the Frogmore car park, just getting ready for the parade, um, and all the cars had to be searched as they came in. So from sort of 7 o'clock in the morning till 10, there was all these policemen there with big guns um, searching. And the guy in charge came over to me um, and said, that's it, the last one, they're all checked. Now, have you got their MOTs? And I looked at him with such a horror on my face because nobody mentioned MOTs <laughs> or anything. And then he burst out laughing, winding me up. <laughs> and I didn't need that, but I still, it, it helped lighten the load. But the best bit for me was we had the parade organised and some people will know of John Gallen, who was a staunch club member, had an Austin Swallow for I don't know how many years. Um, he was in his 80s, he was not well, and I wanted him to lead the parade because he had the oldest car that we knew would do it. And he, he was in hospital, so we didn't think he was going to do it. Anyway, bless him, he, he got his nurse, who was, I think it was his cousin anyway, to um, come in the car, drove his little Austin 7 up to one Windsor, he was lived in Surrey anyway, and got ready to start the parade. Now, we had all sorts of cars in the parade, and one of them was the wonderful XJ13, which Michael Quinn, Sir William's grandson, was going to drive. Michael came to me and said, look, I can't sit in a queue of cars in this. It's, it won't do it. The clutch will burn out. Um, we've got to go a bit uh, quicker than that. So, I, see, so he said, well, can I lead the parade? And I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. If we send XJ13 up before the parade starts, it'll wind the crowd up nicely. We had Rod Jenner up there doing the commentary. Um, and I said, well, the only thing is, Michael, I've got to get up to the castle. So I need a lift. <laughs> so uh, 
I had a lift in XJ13 blasting its way up Windsor High Street into the castle. So another very memorable moment for me. Brilliant. When you look back between now and 1984, what do you think are the biggest changes you've seen over that time? It's got to be values. Up until a few years ago, I'd had 60 or so Jaguars, and I don't suppose I spent more than a couple of thousand on any of them. Um, I must have had 10 or 12 Series 1 XJ6s, which I think the best one I ever bought cost me 3000 Now I couldn't buy that car for under 10 So let alone buying an E-Type now. So I think that's the, the, the biggest thing. I'm not sure it's always a good thing, but it's the biggest thing that's happened is the sheer value um, and the changes that makes with, with more money coming into it. But of course, the other thing, which I'm sure you've noticed, is the quality of events has had to change. Um, what with the Goodwoods of this world, you can't just pull a few cars in a field and call it an event. And people expect so much more. Um, hence what I was saying earlier about having all the stuff we carry and the time it takes now to put on uh, and do a decent event. Yes, you couldn't run it in your little caravan with a broken axle anymore, could you? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. Yeah. Now we have the Summer Jaguar Festival last year, a fantastic event at Blenheim. Hopefully, fingers crossed, happens this year at Newby Hall and then back to Blenheim for 2021 for E60, uh, the 60th anniversary of the E-Type. And I suppose one of the big challenges the club faces is not only putting on those events that are of a certain character to ensure that they play on a, the, the world stage, if you like, but also considering that within the club there is a £5 million D-type owner and a 500 quid XJ40 or X-type owner, and those people are after different things from the club, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. Unfortunately, they, we've been very lucky with our wealthier uh, members. They do tend to happily talk to any of the others as long as they've got a love of the cars. So we've never had a, a, a differential other than the fact they've got the cash. But they're always very helpful to us. But we, you have to supply both. Um, but I also find that those people with the, uh, the lower end of the, the, the value market, they do like to put a little bit of money in and come to a nice event. They want to, to do something special with their car. Um, and, of course, our events are always inclusive of all cars so that they've got the chance to you know, park next to a D-Type um, uh, if they wish to. And uh, I think if you look at the cars that come that came to Blenheim last year, um, I think that proves the point. There was absolutely everything. Uh, 1,200 Jaguars there and absolutely everything. But you take Newby, for instance, we're also having a camping area, which uh, James Blackwell is running. In fact, from what he was telling me about what's going on there with the help of swallows and the old barrel of beer, I think I wish I was staying there around the hotel. <laughs> and this is the brilliant thing about the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is that there is that rich diversity of different cars, different owners, different backgrounds and people from all sorts of walks of life that actually just come together and share that passion for Jaguar and that's what makes it a really rich club socially as well isn't it? I think you're right and I think the thing from my point of view will always be as much as I love the cars, I've owned a lot of them, I've driven virtually everything there is to drive for not being big-headed but I've been very very lucky in doing that but it's the people. 
I've met some wonderful people, um, and you, you you know you chat on the phone to them, or, or you hear about, you hear their life story, or just have a general you know chat about cars. But um, no matter who they are, or what they are, they they you know we've come across some wonderful people within the club, um, and then even now, for instance, you know whilst we're all getting older, even you are getting older, um, <laughs> we've now got the youth section which you've helped form, uh, and you know that brings on another era and another type of person joining the club with any luck. So we keep it going now for the next 35 years so uh, there's some very good stuff has happened and there's still good stuff to happen of course i um uh, took the decision to cut my hours down uh, in 2019 i cut down to three days a week well in theory it's three days a week anyway um and uh, so that, that allows james to become general manager and he's doing a great job there and of course, we've got the likes of Andy Weber now organising events and sponsorship, and and with yourself helping us, and the likes of Richard West on the board, who uh, people will know from your other podcasts. Um, we're in a very strong position, and uh, it's taken us forward to the next new era. And I can't wait to uh, see what we're going to do and uh, how that pans out. The future is bright for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, and uh, we'll forge on into future years to make it uh, a bigger and better and stronger club, as you, Graham and the rest of the team have done over the uh, past 36 years since that very first meeting in 1984. Graham Sell, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Wayne. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, join us next week when we'll have news of a very, very special motorsport celebrity on this very podcast. It's a very exciting interview, and it's one you're not going to want to miss, I promise you. Plus, we'll be opening our competition to win some very exclusive and high-quality merchandise courtesy of CMC Classic Motorcars in Bridge North. And I have seen them already, and they are stunning. Absolutely amazing. So news of that on Episode 5 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jcpodcast.com. Just use the voicemail system on there. Very easy to use. Or, of course, you can use the contact form as well. See you next week. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.